Hello, everybody. This is Noah, and welcome to Change Talk, a podcast where I have conversations with people who are thinking about change and are open to talking about it. In this week's episode, I speak with Dr. Kelly Palfi. Kelly began her career as an officer for the RCMP, where she specialized in sex crimes committed against children internationally. After retiring from the RCMP, Dr. Palfi obtained her PhD in counseling psychology. She has since spent most of her clinical practice working with male adult survivors of sexual abuse, first responders, and trauma victims. Dr. Palfi is the author of Men Too, Unspoken Truths About Male Sexual Abuse, which looks at the experiences of 13 male sexual abuse survivors with the goal of increasing conversations about this important topic. In addition to talking about her work, Dr. Palfi talks with me about wanting to be better at turning down potential new clients when her schedule is already full. And while we have you here, if you like what you're hearing on this podcast, please take a moment to rate and review us on your favorite podcast platform. This can make a huge difference in expanding Change Talk's reach. And if you really like what you're hearing, consider donating to our tip jar, which can be found by following the link at the bottom of our show notes. Thanks for listening. Enjoy. And may Dr. Palfi's Change Talk, in some small way, inspire your own. Please note that this podcast is not therapy. Please seek professional help if needed. I'm here with Kelly, Dr. Yes. Palfi. Thank you so much for coming on. It's a pleasure to meet you. Nice to meet you as well, Noah. Thanks for you, having me. You're welcome. You are a Canadian, I think. You sound Canadian. Where are you from, Kelly? I'm a small town girl from Saskatchewan. Cool. Tell us something like about growing up in Saskatchewan. You have to make your own fun because there's not a lot to do in the small towns. Right. So what would you do, what would you do to make your own fun? Oh, my gosh. Uh, I don't. Well, I mean, I'm a very different person now. But yeah, I was. Yeah, we would drive around and get into trouble and lots of lots of things that I don't even want to repeat on the air. <laughs> <laughs> That's fine. So you came out with a book. Um, we're going to just plug it right away, which is called Men Too. Unspoken Truths About Male Sexual Abuse. Mm -hmm. But I want to just learn a little bit about how you got there. How do you go from being Kelly from Saskatchewan, small town, mm -hmm. to writing a book called Men Too? What's your okay. story? Okay. Well, um, I want to say I was raised in a pretty dysfunctional house, lots of fighting, and uh, grew up pretty dysregulated, to be honest. Uh, not a super confident person. Maybe on the out outward scene, I might have looked confident, but um, pretty lost. And like a lot of lost people looking for sort of um, a place to fit in or a place to be heard or a place to take back your power. I joined the Mounties. I joined the RCMP when I was, I got in when I was 25. And I had an interest in working in sex crimes right away. I don't know. I just, <laughs> to be honest, I, I fell in love with that movie Silence of the Lambs years ago and I wanted to be Jodie Foster. <laughs> 
And, I haven't um, seen the movie, but I know it's like very, 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 very intense yeah, movie. Yeah, yeah. And I was always a pretty intense person, so um, I was kind of attracted to, I guess you could say, the behavioral sciences units and stuff like that and um eventually worked my way into the behavioral sciences unit in the rcmp and myself and the corporal actually started up the integrated child sexual exploitation unit so um they were training me to be a subject matter expert and um lots of training and just lots of i, I guess kind of groundbreaking work in that area and it, the funny thing is like um, how I wrote the book or kind of why I wrote the book was sort of this gross awareness of the fact that at the time I would have been considered one of the experts and I knew nothing about it, right? Like, I mean, I was being trained to be a subject matter expert in this area and myself and my colleagues, my bosses, we knew very little about, you know, for example, male sexual abuse, I want to say. I, I remember like I was the... Uh, file coordinator for the RCMP, RCMP's first sex tourism charge, which is out of Columbia. And we had like 65 DVDs or whatever that we'd seized and we were going through. And I remember my boss telling me, don't worry about the boys. And I didn't question it at all. I just didn't even question it. So we had a, we had a lecture by, uh, I was in Ottawa on a training course and Sheldon Kennedy came and spoke to us. And um, just tell us who that is. I know who that is. And I know you're yeah. right there, but Sheldon Kennedy was one of the first men to ever come forward about being sexually abused. Um, he was, he played for the Calgary Flames, the Boston Bruins, Detroit Red Wings. And he came out and um, he was one of the first people to come out and disclose that he had been sexually abused by his coach, Graham James. And um, I just remember at the time I was going through bullying and stuff like that so I was a mess myself and I'm sitting there um, listening to him talk about the reasons he didn't disclose and he talked about you know like his reasons were so valid like he talked about you know his career was literally bringing his family out of poverty he had the skill set he knew he had the ability to make it pro he just needed someone to help him get there and he was basically at his coach's mercy right and he, he also felt like he knew other people were aware of it, but did nothing. And he talked about living this double life. And I'm telling you, that just hit me on the head, right? Because even though I wasn't being sexually abused, the parallels between what was going on in my life at the time and what he was talking about were crazy, right? Because, I mean, here I was a cop with a badge and a gun, yet I was being bullied and I was living this double life, pretending everything was okay yet falling apart at home and physically and mentally and um I mean just yeah just the I just could really relate to that piece about living a double life and in my career prior to getting into the RCMP I'd been a corrections officer and I remember legit wondering like why are there so many men in prison like you know compared to women why so many men and when he told his story about how he turned to alcohol and drugs and stuff like that. It was just like the lights went on. I just started to see it. Oh my gosh, this is why there are so many men in prison. And I just like, my heart just broke for him. I just realized that there are no services for men. Like there's no support. Like men just can't even come forward in today's, like at the time, this was 2003, 2004. So that, you know, I mean, 
15 years has made a lot of difference for male survivors, you know, and their ability to come forward and just the number of males that have come forward and whatnot. But like, he was the first and, and um, that I knew of anyways. And so, so fast forward, um, I guess four years later, I had my bullying just got worse and my physical response just got worse. And my doctor actually took me off work. He told me you're done. Like you don't report to them anymore. And I was devastated, but yet relieved because I knew it was the right decision uh, for my health physically. Right. And so um, I was desperate for like something to be passionate about because you can't just go from working in the child sexual exploitation unit back to waitressing, like no offense to waitresses, but the that stakes was just, are just so high. I just, I knew doing. I would get depressed if I had to do that. So I said to myself, no going backwards, you know, like I can't go backwards no matter what it takes. I have to, I have to go forwards. I have to do better, I guess you could say. And so, you know, honestly, it's what brought me to my knees. Like, God, if you're real, I need you. And I was like, please just give me something to be passionate about. And this was four years later. And he legit reminded me of Sheldon Kennedy that I, cause I, that my heart had broken that I had kind of wished that I could have done more, you know? And one of my professors at my, in my master's program, I started my master's program because I was in the behavioral sciences unit and I was trying to get into the, into the um, program to be a, um, to be a, to criminal. Be a criminal profile. Yeah. Yes. And, and so I, I, you know, I mean, I knew things weren't good for me at the time, but I thought, you know, in five years I'll be done my master's degree. There'll be new bosses and, you know, like they'll just have to pick me because you had to have a master's degree to do that training. I ended up leaving the RCMP, but I was, um, and, and stayed in my master's program and I was totally freaked out about like, am I going to be happy in this career? And God reminded me of this, of this interview or this, um, this um, lecture, sorry, that I'd heard of Sheldon Kennedy or by Sheldon Kennedy. And I, a little, little spark just went off and I was like, I could totally get on board for supporting male survivors. Like this is important work. Like this is just as important as what I was doing before. So yeah, so part, I guess you could say part of it was selfish. I just wanted to do something important and it was just such rewarding work. And I mean, you know, I, I kind of always joke, God, I have a big mouth, use it for good, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and how do you yeah. interpret, how do you experience when you say, you know, you got on your knees or you, you had this feeling of like, I know what I want to do. What is that like? What, what's that experience? Well, like? it was, it was, it was a, you know, I mean, I want to say it was my rock bottom. Like I, I always believed in God, but I wasn't really in touch with my faith. It wasn't, I wasn't active in it, but I was starting to get afraid about my future, right? Like I, I, I don't want to say I was suicidal, but I didn't want to become suicidal. I always say I wasn't suicidal, but I understood why people were like, that's where I was at, right? Like, you know, they say that most people, if they have like one reason to live, they won't complete suicide. And I had at least one reason to live. <laughs> so, but I, yeah, I got on my knees and I was like, God, you just have to give me something to be passionate about, you know, like, and, you know, I mean, yeah, thankfully, uh, thankfully he did. And, and I, it, I just remember thinking like, like getting this memory come back to me and, or having this memory come back to me and, and feeling like this is real, like, this is important. Like nobody else is doing this. And, right. and just really feeling that passion come alive as I allowed myself to harvest that idea. And 
I think I still had a lot of my own personal stuff to work through at that time. But, you know, as I, I guess I, I, during my master's program, I did one of my practicums at a place in BC called the BC Society for Male Survivors of Sexual Abuse. And that's when the passion really came alive because, you know, because I got to experience that men really did want to talk about this, that men really did want help with this and that men really would talk to me. You know, I mean, obviously not all men, but the ones that, you know, we advertised and men would come forward to the agency and, and it was just so um, rewarding to actually help them. Right. And some of them were in like really, really bad places. Right. Um, You know, so it inspired me to want to do my doctorate to be able to help them on a, on the best level that I possibly could. And also to research, like, why are so many boys and men not talking about this? So, because again, going back to that idea that I was supposed to be the expert and I knew nothing about this. Like they say that, you know, no one wants to talk about it, least of all victims themselves. So I wanted to learn why, why is that? So yeah, I spent like a year researching it and then, uh, then wrote my book on it. <laughs> so it's, 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 it's a long journey, but it's a similar, you know, everything is, is connected to whatever the work was, was that there's this need mm-hmm. and, I am uniquely positioned yeah. uh, within within a need that is real that's going yeah. on. And I have an opportunity right now to make that difference and I need to do it. It just reminds me of a quote from Rabbi Jonathan Sachs of Blessed Memory. He was he just passed away. He's one of the most famous Jewish uh, rabbis uh, in the 20th, 21st century, 20th century. And he said, where what we want to do meets what needs to be done, mm. this is where God wants us to be. Oh, oh, that has been so much my journey to faith and so much my experience. Honestly, that is beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. And I, and I hear it in your voice. I mean, I see it also in your, in your face that this is, you know, obviously you, you, you've come to talk about this issue, the, the issue that nobody talks about, even though we are talking more about it, always a little bit more each day, hopefully, and you're involved, you're actually doing that literally right now. Um, so you're constantly meeting your purpose, but I was, you know, noticing that uh, you have inner world of what it means to be alive in something that matters. Uh, Mm -hmm, And I mm -hmm. think that you're probably, people are probably experiencing that through your work. Uh, So it's a sort of a byproduct of this topic. I I don't want to take away from the topic itself, Mm -hmm. but it is also a little bit of of an understanding into the world of someone who's sort of possessed with uh, a sense of purpose. And, and, you know, I mean, it's, it has been a a journey, like, you know, it's kind of like God used what was my misery to be my ministry now too, right? Because a lot of the pieces in my book are things that I learned along the way in my education about, you know, self-soothing, self-regulation, self-esteem, self-worth, confusion, grooming, like I, I understand like grooming from my work in the RCMP, from witnessing it. But also just from, you know, when you have your own personal needs and whatnot, if they're not met, just that those feelings that you can have and how you can kind of get sucked into a, a bad relationship, for example, when you have needs. Yeah. Yeah. So, so there's this big topic that you're so passionate about, and I want you to just tell us, why is this such an issue? Tell us about the issue. Like, spell it out for me. I've read a little bit about what you've done, but people don't know about it. It's obviously a provocative title. 
because it's a it's a spinoff on the Me Too. If you didn't notice it, the book's called Men Too, and I think the the N is in brackets. So, well, I mean, a couple of things like research shows that men will not talk about things that they don't hear other people talking about. Specifically, I mean, specifically other men, but I think even in general, like people don't men specifically don't talk about things that they don't hear other people talking about. And the, the research shows that there was a study out of Iceland, I think it was 2017, might have been earlier than that. But anyways, it was uh, 14 men that they interviewed that admitted that they were either going to kill themselves or talk about it. And I think that is actually really predominant amongst men, to be honest. Um, the suicide rate of boys and men to f- females and women is, th- I think it's... 3.5 times higher. The accidental overdose rate is, I'm sorry, I can't remember exactly, but it's, it's at least 15% higher than females. Yeah, so drug addictions are higher. Um, you know, obviously incarceration rates are higher. So I see it as a huge, like, cost to male, to boys and men, but also to society, right? I mean, my, my, my interest is to help boys and men, but I think if as a society, we could take this more seriously and look at it I mean it costs I think it's $1,500 a day to house an inmate and how many men are in prison are in prison because they you know had turned to drugs or alcohol which leads to crime to deal with pain yeah deal with or yeah or because the only way they felt they could express themselves was through violence right so or like you know god forbid killed their offenders you haven't said it directly but it sounds like the issue uh for men the issue here of obviously not speaking about their feelings is most exacerbated or exaggerated in experiences of abuse. But it's it's a more of a meta issue for men to not express mental struggle and, and rather kind of hide in shame forever in whatever capacity than share about it. But tell us a little bit about in particular with abuse, what's going on? What have we what have you learned that that you could share with us that we need to know? Well, you know, one of the most um, sort of shocking things that I learned when I did my research, I mean, it just, I guess it just wasn't something, I don't have kids, and uh, I guess it was something that I might not have considered outside of doing my own research, but you, when you consider, like, the influence of Western culture and masculine biases and stuff like that, like, for example, a little boy that is sexually abused will often protect his parents from that information, Right. And if you think about that, that is just shocking, sad, right? Like a a little boy is far more likely to say, oh my gosh, my parents have so much on their plate. I can't burden them with this, right? Um, Or or my dad's reputation because, you know, he's the pastor or he's the elder or whatever. Like we wouldn't, I wouldn't want to bring shame on the family, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, my sister needs so much attention. I can't burden them more, right? So little boys will do what they what men do, which is protect, right? Right. First of all, you know, even when you said, when I saw the book title, I thought, okay, this is the issue that I'm thinking in my head right now that we're going to talk about is men that are sexually abused by, or physically, verbally, emotionally abused by women in relationships. That was what I thought because it's me too. And a lot of the me too momentum is about relationships. Um, So that's what I thought it was. And then I did more research and it's about all kinds of male abuse that goes on from young children. And you mentioned coaches, all sorts of things. 
yes, it is men as well, but predominantly what I'm talking about is infants, little boys, adolescents, teens, right? Like research shows that one out of every six males will be sexually abused to some extent prior to the age of 16. One in 12 most likely will be forced to engage in intercourse prior to the age of 16. And one thing that I learned from reading up on you in the book is that it's not this kind of stranger danger world that we see. It's much more complicated than that because it's trusted people in the person's life. That's what makes it even more scary. Who is the typical perpetrator of these abuses? At least 90% of the time, it's someone that the family knows and loves because these guys will make themselves into be the least likely person you would ever suspect, right? They look for they look for potential victims by identifying a family that has a need, right? Like, oh, mom can't pick up her son from football. Mom can't take, mom doesn't understand math. Dad's away at work. Like they'll volunteer to help, right? What I usually tell people is if it seems too good to be true, it probably is. Um, so yeah, they, these are, I mean. Who are I they? Remember. Are they cousins, friends, yeah. family? Uh, yeah teachers I don't like who are these people all of the above offenders will insert themselves into careers into volunteer positions majority of the time it is well orchestrated premeditated they will volunteer often befriending the family I just I was just counseling a man who was friends with um he was in a church group and three of his um, three of his friends were all sexually abused by the same guy, but he wasn't. So that is so common, right? Like the guy will, for example, become the youth pastor or the coach or the what, you know, youth worker, whatever it, you know, the position is and not offend against the majority of the boys. So he's created, you know, 15 alibis that would say he would never do that. And then they will often target the kid that's got a reputation for lying, right? So the kid who's already in trouble, right? Because the kid's already in trouble. Who knows what's going on at home? Um, maybe he's crying he's been, wolf, this kid. Or he's just, yeah, he's just been in trouble already. Or he's, you know, the shy kid that, you know, or, or the lonely kid or the kid who isn't being fed properly or the kid who needs help with math or the kid who is needing extra coaching in sports or whatever, but they'll fill that need. And, but yeah, like I said, like one of the easiest targets for them would be the kid who's already got a reputation for lying. Right. Because when he comes forward, the parents go, yeah, right. You've been lying for four years now. So I'm not believing this either. Wow. Not for one minute to exonerate or defend the people doing it. Is there any research on these people, these premeditated you know, almost psychopathic kind of people, are they also abused? Have they been abused? Is there any correlation that is reasonable or meaningful to understand about those people? Oh, actually, I just read a really great book. I wish I hadn't just loaned it out or I'd show you the title. Uh, it's by Dr. Anna Salter, I believe, and it's mm. called ooh, pedophiles, rapists, and other sex offenders or something like that. But she was a psychologist in prisons working with the psychopaths who were sex offenders. And she quoted, I, I think it was her own research, but I'm not 100% on that. I can't remember. But basically, they were claiming or her research was showing that 70% of um, psychopathic sex offenders claimed that they had been sexually abused themselves 
until they were challenged with a polygraph. And prior to even getting the polygraph, 40% of them reneged on that. So we've dropped from 70% claiming that they were sexually abused to 40% without even taking the polygraph. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So isn't that convenient? Right. And there is other research shows that it's less than 10% of victims go on to reoffend. But the other piece is that that is one of the things that keeps so many male victims silence is silent is this myth that people believe that if you were a victim, you will become an offender, right? Isn't that interesting, that, right? Yeah, because yeah. And that's the whole thing. It's like, I just mm -hmm. assumed, of course, that's why they're yeah. doing that. And then it takes away from the mm -hmm. people wanting to share because other people might think, yeah. oh, they're going to be dangerous. Exactly. Yeah, that's because that's, that's like a yeah. double silence there. Yeah, exactly. Right. We're, we're basically primed to have secure attachment. We come into this world literally helpless more than any other species. We, we need the most support. Mm -hmm. We need actual love act like not this fluffy metaphorical thing. We need we are brought up in love and care. We need to be given food and we need to be given Mm -hmm. You need to be nurtured and soothed. All these things that are so fundamental to have a secure attachment. And these kinds of situations are where children are basically 100% trusting. They Because that's all that they know. That's how they survived. Up until this point, they have had to trust people that usually keep their trust. And so they learned to learn that they learn to trust that the world is safe. When something like that happens, the rupture is almost stronger than anything you can imagine because the basic root of in the foundation of the world that you grew up in turns out to be a lie in some way that the world isn't safe and that people aren't trustworthy. How do these people recover? How do you help them develop a sense of safety again in the world? Well, no, actually what you described when you say like, you know, a child grows up, you know, trusting and being able to trust um, those types are actually much easier to treat and to help recover. Like recovery depends a lot on their pre-abuse supports and their pre-abuse ability to self-regulate. So the one that you just described that was able to self-regulate and grew up in a loving environment and had their trust breached would be able to rebound much better, faster um, to, uh, to a uh, pre-abuse state than the child who grew up in the exact opposite environment where they are not used to having people that they can rely on and they did not learn how to self-regulate and they've never been able to trust. And those types are, I wanna say more, uh, da I don't know, more damaged, but more, I would say they'd be more susceptible to be abused because they have no sense of what is trust prior to the abuse, right? Like, and also, you know, d depending again on how um, decompensated or or dysregulated they are um, you know their desperation to have that love that you mentioned earlier right so um, I mean kids can be so abused that they don't even seek it anymore to be honest right, right. but like how, yeah, do you so help? What, how do you help yeah it's it's a long process right but I always say trust is learned slowly right we shouldn't be learning we shouldn't be trusting people real quick right like right. even with my clients I tell them we're not going to get into the real deep stuff for a while until I want to make sure that you actually trust me right because 
I can't just tell you to trust me. You have to test that. And I teach them how to test it, right? I'll tell them, okay, today, this is what we're going to talk about. And then I stick to it. And then at the end of the session, I ask them, did I stick to what I said I was going to talk about, right? right? And I teach them about, you know, I do a lot of psychoeducation, like about abuse, about the effects of abuse. We work kind of we work on um, building up the resilience, building up their coping mechanisms, um, psychoeducational pieces, self-regulation, and um, when they're better resourced, then we do the deeper work. Right. So, yeah. And and just to clarify, and obvious, this is obvious, but I just want to say, is that of course these issues are cross gender. It's yeah. just you are bringing the awareness for the ma- the male side of this what do I need to learn about the me too movement for men on the men's side of things that I don't know about? Well, I mean, I don't know that there is a men too movement per se. Uh, uh, two adults, for example, in a, in a relationship where the, the man, the men, the man is abused. Can you mm-hmm. tell us a little bit about that? Um, like in adult relationships? Yeah. I mean, well, I mean, I definitely saw that as a police lady. I saw females as the aggressor and, I mean, I, you know, had my own share of witnessing that in my own upbringing, right? Like, um, yeah, so, uh, you know, just having a sister that was always beating me up and stuff like that. I, I just remember, you know, I learned that females can be aggressors too. I guess like, I mean, I, yeah, I don't honestly, like I really just, I really was just trying to get the world's attention and say like, hey, just don't forget about the men, right? Like, I'm, I'm not saying we have a huge movement, although it is becoming more, more socially acceptable to talk about it right and more and more people are coming forward so i mean and you know more and more agencies are popping up around the world but we're still we're still in its infancy by a long shot sure i do have parents telling me that their sons have disclosed to them that um you know um their girlfriends said you know you'll either have sex with me or i'll tell everybody you're gay or i'll tell everybody that you have a little penis or i'll tell everybody that um you know so there is that thing that part of it going on you know that young boys are feeling you know young boys before they would say be ready themselves to engage in sexual activity are being peer pressured into it by their girlfriends or by their peers right so i mean i guess you could argue whether or not that was consensual but um that is one of the trends that we're seeing um boys being lured online and then i i think this is where you know just this is why we have laws in canada for example right because what happens is the boy will be groomed or lured by an older male or female and they will present it as a relationship as an authentic relationship and then like you know part of the grooming process is they befriend them for a while they win their affection and then they slowly introduce physical touch whether it's tickling or wrestling or teaching them a skill set or something like that and then you know they'll introduce alcohol other masculine principles treat them like they're older than they are and then you know um, introduce them like very common for uh, a pedophile to ask them what they know about sex or to um, ask them the, you know give them pornographic material and tell them to go masturbate for example and treat them as if they're already doing that or that they know about this or whatever and then insert themselves into that process so this is a big reason why boys aren't coming forward is because they don't even understand whether or not they consented because they like their perpetrator because they present it to them as a coming of age experience or a romance or something like that. But that's why we have laws in Canada to protect Mm. 
boys from situations and girls, obviously, from situations like that. Right. I, I don't even know where the education starts. I don't know if it starts in elementary school, where it starts, yeah. if you've been doing any education in the schools. Mm. Well, I haven't per se. I'm, I'm just flying solo here. But myself and another psychologist in Edmonton, we are writing a children's book series right now because parents find it very difficult to have those conversations with their kids. So hopefully by the end of the year, we'll have our books out. <laughs> yeah. Very slow process, unfortunately. Um, you know, just books that parents can read to their kids um, to introduce the topic of of grooming or male sexual abuse to their to their boys, to their kids, and just you know, to education does have to start early. Parents have to have frank conversations with their kids about their realities that that not everyone that that comes into their world is safe and can be trusted. Parents need to be educated not to push their kids to trust people that they don't want to trust and not to just, you know, not to, you know, just get too involved in their own lives that they're too busy to look at what's going on in their kids' lives kind of thing. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, the last thing that I do want to just get cl clarity about, in, and I think I sort of asked it, but I just want to make sure I, I get to it. You know, t particularly today, a lot of women are coming out uh, about uh, what is consent, especially with, with, with regards to sexuality. So less about, you know, as children and things like that, but to consenting adults in a sexual relationship. And you have a lot of people say that the only thing that's consent is a yes. Now, is it the same for men? So if a woman is sort of being the one leading the sexual experience, uh, are, is it the same kind of standard that it's men need to say yes? Because I think there's this idea, and again, tell me if I'm wrong, but there's this idea that, um, you know. Men always want it. Men want it <laughs> yeah, and, and yeah. kind of lead yeah, and therefore, yeah. Yeah. But, but women also want, like can be leading. And so I'm just wondering if there's been any of that kind of stuff where men have felt pressured to do things absolutely. that they didn't want to do. And for women, we're looking around and of course we should be absolutely. Again, this is not about. I'm not choosing, there's no choosing gender sides here on an yeah. issue that is terrible for everybody. Yeah. Um, well, no, I think you just, you just kind of said the, the answer to that question yourself is that consent is genderless, right? Like, right. Um, and, and so where we're seeing more of this that I'm aware of, I mean, well, for example, one of the participants in my book, he didn't actually make it into my book because he didn't meet criteria. Um, my criteria was they ha couldn't have talked about it for a year and he did talk about it but I still interviewed him and got his story and he was saying that you know he had broken up with his girlfriend and she'd moved out and but she still had a key to the house and I, I believe the story was that she just let herself in and he woke up and she was literally having sex with him and so that's definitely not consensual right and I mean he was I mean and that 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 happened in my uh, research many times the boys would just be asleep and wake up and someone was fondling them so I mean obviously that's not consensual right and you know in the more vulnerable populations too like the LGBTQ and homosexual populations right like you know they use dating sites they use hookups just like you know heterosexual relationships do and oftentimes like I mean just like a woman can be um, administered a date rape, date rape drug so can a man right so uh, you know, they may be drugged themselves, they may be, you know, initially consenting to one activity and then mm -hmm. forced or coerced or whatever into another activity. So yeah, it, I mean, it does happen to men as well. So it's really the whole the whole point is, I think, of what I'm getting from this, Kelly, from your perspective is just it is genderless. Yeah, you're just trying to bring that to the forefront. Yeah, I just trying to create awareness that boys are victims right. too. boys and men are victims too. like, when you think about it, I mean, 
we know that the statistics are not reliable because men, boys and men don't come forward. And what we know now is that approximately one out of every six, which is about half as many as women. So if as many men were being more honest, would it, I think the statistics would be a lot closer together, to be honest. <laughs> right. And even if they were a bit less, it doesn't matter. The bottom line is, is that it's being concealed more. Um, and hopefully it won't be. I mean, yeah. hopefully... Hopefully people will just talk about it. And like you said, men do not like to talk about things that other people do not talk about. Uh, the only other thing I just want to ask you is the reaction that people have had to, to your work. Has there been any pushback or anything? Or is everyone just like, yes, go Kelly? Um, I want to say I've had two negative comments. I can't remember exactly what out of like 500. So not many. Right. Um, it's been it's been predominantly really positive. Um, yeah, no, sorry. The one negative comment was about me bringing God into things. <laughs> oh, really? Sorry. Yeah, but um, people, people no. got offended by that. Yeah, I was in a chat room on a psychologist group. And um, somebody was asking, what do you say to a man who got aroused during abuse? And I said, tell him his body responds the way God intended it to, to be able to respond to touch. And she lit me up for talking. Do you got to bring God into everything? I was like, I didn't even respond to it because someone else yeah. had responded to it before I saw it. <laughs> but yeah, no, it's been super positive. Honestly, it's been, yeah, it, actually, it's, I should say the response to me. And I mean, people say, people either tell me, oh my gosh, your book was so good. I read it in one whole weekend, which of course is flattering and stuff. Or I get told I'm reading it very slowly. It's hard to read. Yeah. Um, but so, I mean, they actually, like, you know, I mean, but what I'm also finding is that, you know, for example, I did a post on LinkedIn in a psychologist group and said, please, you know, we need to talk about this. Can you please just share this post? And nobody did. Mm. So that piece kind of breaks my heart, too, because here I am saying, you know, research shows that even as psychologists, we don't recognize males as victims. And everybody just seems to be so busy with their own agenda. It's like, like don't you guys see the, how, how relevant this is, you know? Right. Yeah. So I'm, I'm seeing that as well. Right. Right. So overwhelmingly positive and that's important, really, really important. And for I, the people doing this work, yes. From the people right. doing this kind of work, like in the human trafficking in the, right. in the, yeah. People that are on the ground and get it. Correct. Yes. Last question before the change talk is uh, your most interesting experience in the RCMP. I mean, it just sounds so like, <laughs> whoa, you're in the RCMP. Like, what was like the coolest thing you ever did? Oh God, <laughs> I feel like I'll be bragging if I tell you that. I don't care. <laughs> um, well, we had a, well, I'm sure you may or may not have heard about um, the serial killer, Robert Picton. Okay. Um, I got asked to be an undercover in that um, when they were investigating him. So that was pretty cool. That was pretty flattering to be asked because I remember when I was driving back to the detachment to get ready for it they were briefing me over the phone and they told me who I was going to be working with and I was like oh my god he's the best in Canada <laughs> yeah it never played out like the scenario never played out but that was the most sort of <laughs> exciting hour and a half or three hours of my life I guess oh you could say <laughs> exciting and terrifying <laughs> oh my gosh it is terrifying but you're here you've survived you were your RCMP officer now you're a psychologist helping both with, I'm sure, many issues, but particularly helping male sexual abuse survivors uh, 
get going, move forward in their life. Mm-hmm. And uh, thank you so much for sharing. Thank let's you, move into, let's, let's move into change talk. So talk oh, to I thought, me. I thought maybe we were out of time now. No, 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 no. Talk to yeah. me <laughs> a little bit about something that you want to change. Well, you know, to be honest, I was telling, I see a chiropractor and I was telling his secretary today, I was like, I don't ever let anybody crack my neck. I said, I have huge trust issues. And I said, I know that must sound silly coming from a psychologist. I said, but I never meant to be a psychologist. (laughs) So, uh, I mean, that's true. I, like I told you earlier, I was intending to be a criminal profiler, right? So um, I want to say, I guess uh, the thing that I'm working on is doing my own work, right? Like, um, and I have over the last year worked with a couple of life coaches and I want to say the last one was absolutely fantastic. And just, you know, sort of, I, I think I want to take that to a deeper level and sort of do some of my own childhood work, which I never have. So, um, but I guess, I guess my point is like, I feel like I, just from what I learned and doing my degree and doing all my training and the little bit of counseling that I have had already, like I have grown and changed so much. I'm literally a different person. I, I want to do it all over again. Like I want to be a different person again in 10 years. Like I want to be just, I want to be the same amount of healthier in 10 years that I am now from last, from 10 years ago. <laughs> right. But you mentioned to me that you want to be better at taking the advice that you give to others. Yeah. So you're clearly, you're not just giving advice. That's not what we as therapists do here. Yeah. Um, but it is part of, part of the work is we are helping yeah. people make life better. So yeah. you give people advice, wisdom, strategies, tools, tricks to make life better. Mm -hmm. What's one of those things that you share a lot with other people that you don't follow yourself? Well, like if I work with a, like, okay, so two things, I want to start doing this more in my practice and I want to start doing it more in my personal life. So yes, you can check in with me and make me be more accountable to this. (laughs) For me, it's too easy to get, like, I know that trauma victims have to tell their story. And like, I work a lot with first responders and Um, I want to say that, um, you know, they say that you can't take someone to a place that you've never been. And I don't know that that's necessarily true because I can say that I've taken clients to places that I've never been, but, um, I just like, you know, for me, like, for example, with my first responders, I think, you know, that a lot of them come in with their guard up and I want to say that maybe I have mine up a little bit too. Um, or that maybe I respect that guard that they have would be more accurate that I don't try to go through it. But I guess what I'm trying to say is just um, sometimes I can, I'll teach self-regulation to my clients and then I'll just assume that they're using it, for example. And and then we'll just do, I'll do a lot of cognitive restructuring and um, stuff like that. And, and maybe not enough practice of self-regulation. Um, and I know I, but I have buy-in for it. I believe in, I believe in it. It's important. It's valuable. It works like using your own skills. So I guess where I'm going at is it like, you're saying, what would you change in your own life? Like, I mean, I have both developmental PTSD and adult PTSD if, if, you know, and um, so like, I don't get really, really, really triggered very often, but like, you know, maybe once every two, three years, I get really triggered and it actually happened this weekend again. And I want to say that I, I mean, I did, I, I really was, very good at my own self-care but I forgot my best skill in that moment right which it sounds crazy but like I kind of stumbled across it by accident when I was super dysregulated about four years ago I, w- I had been about three four days like walking around like a spun top because I had been very dysregulated and I was actually at a trauma conference in 
Banff when it happened. So I treated myself, I took myself to the Banff Springs Hotel and there they have this hot cold pools, right? So I just like, I literally, I wasn't even, I wasn't thinking that, I didn't know that that would work is what I'm trying to say, but I was in the, like, it's like a hot tub, but it's cold. And so I was doing the hot cold thing and it actually re-regulated me. And then I was listening to a podcast. Oh my gosh, I wish it might've been, it might've been Carolyn Leaf that interviewed him. I can't remember, but somebody interviewed, I can't remember his name, but he's known as the Iceman. And oh he yeah, was Woodenhoff. Talk- yeah, okay. Sorry, thank you. Uh, but he was talking about how it's good for self-regulation. And I was like, oh, that was my experience as well. And I have told countless clients that get very dysregulated that the one thing that really works for me is hot, cold. Yet, do you think that came to my mind this weekend? No, right? The only reason I was able to, actually what kind of snapped me out of it last night was I had a plumbing, I had a, I live out on an acreage and my cistern alarm went off and my neighbor came over to help me with it and I ran outside without a coat on and I was completely like I was still quite dysregulated but then by the time I came back inside after having been outside without my coat on for 10 minutes I felt really good so it was like I guess my point is like reminding myself to use the skills that I know that work for me right and and practicing them in my practice with my clients right so so you have this there's this ability to self-regulate that we have mm-hmm. that you obviously do with you work on with people a lot but you have sometimes you struggle with it yourself at times and then you don't implement your own advice true story <laughs> I forgot I mean I it wasn't like I was purposely right, not right. doing it I just legit forgot and so like I will tell my clients make a list of your coping skills so I know this sounds and I will see if we can work with this because it sounds like this is something that you actually don't need, really need to work on I mean you kind of need to remember better yeah. right yeah so what do you think it so this is kind of an interesting one right because you have this skill that you know works for you hot cold and by the way uh, for people wondering in dialectical behavior therapy dbt uh in distress tolerance skills so dialectical behavior therapy has four different sets of skills which are incredible mental health skills uh in the tip skills which are skills to deal with high emotional distress one of them is to put your face in a bucket of cold mm-hmm. water mm-hmm. Uh, in order to regulate yourself. And uh, whoever's gone into cold waters knows there's something powerful about it. There's something yeah. that just cannot yeah. be explained other than you got to do it yourself to understand. Yeah. I honestly say one of the things that has helped me most as a psychologist is having gone through my own PTSD. But that that doesn't mean that everybody has to. But I mean, you have to understand, I went from being a cop, I went from being, you know, a cop, tough, suck it up, buttercup kind of person. And, and you know, I mean, I remember sitting there in my master's program, because like I said, I didn't, I wasn't planning to be a psychologist. And I remember, um, one of my profs saying, you don't give advice to your clients, you know, because we're not supposed to make decisions for them unless they're really, really decompensated, of course. But I remember sitting there thinking, mother of God, what am I doing? What have I got myself into, right? Because I was just thinking I'm going to be giving all this advice to people. So um, would have in the past just taken this, like, I mean, it would have been totally unhealthy, but, you know, the sort of like suck it up buttercup, like becoming their cheerleader instead of, right. instead of companioning them instead of like 
right. you know, like helping, right? Do you know what I mean? Like, I understand it on a guttural level that you can't just get over it. You have to work through it, right? Like you right. have to physiologically, cognitively, emotionally work through these things. You can't just choose to get over it, right? It's it's a process. Like you were asking, like, what would you want to work on? And I would I would say, like, you know, basically at the end of the day, practicing my own skills practicing right. self-care better you know like yes yeah. like you, you, I mean even just saying no right to clients like right. I have a really hard time saying no to first responders or male survivors even if I'm working my butt off right like even right. if I know I'm burnt out and needing rest I think I always think well they're worse off than me <laughs> right so why don't you say no how does it benefit you to just keep saying yes Oh, there's lots of benefits. I mean, you don't have to look at yourself if you're helping someone else, right? <laughs> Plus, I mean, I've got this acreage I have to pay off. And I mean, yeah, it satisfies the ego, the pride, all those things, right? Right. So you have these all these skills that you that you try to work on. One of them, of course, we talked about the regulation, but I want to focus on this saying no. Clearly, you you help your clients with boundaries, right? So yes. um, in some way, shape, or form, but for you. Yeah. It's hard for you to say no, because yeah. saying yes means more opportunities, yeah. more people to help. You mm-hmm. also said less time to focus on myself <laughs> and whatever I have going on. It's paying the bills. I live in this place and I need to pay it off. So there's a lot of benefits to saying no. A lot of, a lot of benefits to saying yes. You mean Sorry, to, to saying yes. There's tons of benefits yeah. to saying yeah. yes. Is there anything yeah. else that is a big benefit for you? Yeah, I mean, keeping busy, right? Keeping busy, like, I don't get lonely. I'm single, right? So keeping busy, I don't get lonely. It's a, it's an antidote to loneliness. Saying yes is an antidote to loneliness. Oh, it can be, yeah. Like, if I'm, yeah, like, it can, it, in the past, for sure, right? Like, instead of being, like, alone at night, I'll take clients on or work nights, right? You know? Because I, I mean, I can fill a day with lots of things to do. No problem. I'll go skiing, I'll go bike riding or whatever. But nighttime can be a little more difficult when you're single. So I might as well give, you know, it's quite flattering to have someone pay to come and talk to you when you're lonely (laughs) or whatever. Right. Like, and and I think you're tapping into just that people feel like being busy all the time and saying yes to work is very validating as a, as a person. And it's, you know, relieving this loneliness, being attached to work is this way mm-hmm. for people to, you know, if there's, if, if, if things are more difficult outside, well, work is moving, you know, mm-hmm. work is busy. So that's a lot. I mean, that's a lot of stuff. That's like really <laughs> good about saying yes to everything. Okay. And you're also like the most, you, you want to help people so badly. Like you're, you're, you know, these are, these, are the, this population, you, I think you mentioned earlier that if somebody like from the Mounties, gets in touch with you they've got it like they're an automatic yes like they it doesn't matter what's going on well, it's like they're yes. actually you know what i to be honest there is another mounty former mounty psychologist in town and i'm very confident referring to her too okay good so, <laughs> so as long I as do. the mounties are taken care of that that's <laughs> yeah they're that's, my peeps <laughs> that's what matters and, and the reason why i ask about like why benefits and obviously you know better than me i'm i'm a newbie but you know especially just understanding the benefits of the behaviors we continue to do instead of just pretending that we all want to change when we do want to change, but we also have a lot of benefits to why we don't change. Um, It is true that like, it is very fulfilling being able to help people. Right. I, I, you know, like, I mean, it's not always like instantaneous each session, but 
you know, over a six month period of time, if you review your notes from where you start with your clients, I mean, it's profoundly rewarding, right? Typically, not always, <laughs> not everybody makes that kind of progress, but you know, it's really rewarding work. Very, so every, yeah, very. Every, look, every case you open, and I guess, you know, we haven't bonded too much about this part of it is that we're both in the helping profession, seeing people all the time and, uh, and hopefully helping people with their lives. And it's, uh, it can be very meaningful to make help people get themselves on the right foot. Yep. You know, it's really hard to say no, because for me, at least um, I look up, you know, and I've been in your position of just, okay, it's time to say no, but there's this part of me that says, okay, if, you know, if not me, then who, even though if that's, mm-hmm. you know, of course not, thank God there are so many people that can help. Um, yeah. But and that's this- a good yeah. And that's like, a, like, very important, but you, yeah. I feel this responsibility at times that I just got to take it all on. Um, and I don't. Getting better at it, getting better at it, honestly. Like, I mean, I've at least in the last couple of years been able to say, like, I kind of, I feel like I can kind of handpick who I work with. Like, maybe I will take on the Mounties, but I don't advertise anymore. And, and like, if, you know, if, if someone, I kind of, you know, if I'm like, if they don't tell me, oh, so-and-so, like I work out of my house. So I only take referrals from people that I trust have kind of done their own background check on people. Right. Like, so, I mean, that piece helps me say no, like easily. So, yeah. So, I mean, that, that in itself helps. And, but yeah, it is a really arrogant attitude to think that I would be the only good psychologist. Like that's crazy. (laughs) Absolutely. But so, so, so what would be better for you if you did say no more than you do? Oh, I would play more and go way more on weekends. And, but I mean, then again, with COVID, it's like easy to just keep working because I don't want to go, I don't want to be at the ski hill with 500 other people. And, you know, anyway. So right now, I mean, it's, it would be, it's maybe harder to say no, but in general saying no would be better for you because it'd be give you more opportunity for life outside of work. True story like play and you just said you like what are, what are the things that yeah. you like to do outside oh my gosh I well I, and I I can feel that as I just bought an acreage with a beautiful deck on, right close to a lake so I think it's going to get a lot easier I like so for me I like to be out in the sun and I want to paddleboard and mountain bike and road bike and and psych you know and go hiking and stuff so you're asking what would be better I would do more of that uh you know and um, I mean, actually, one of the one of the benefits of COVID has been that we've been able to do Zoom and be effective. So I'm like, I'm really trying to work up to like when I was a Mountie, I used to take six week vacations. I want to do that again once COVID passes, right. like, and just do Zoom with my clients. Like, you know, the worst of my worst clients, I'll keep on and and work with them one day a week and be gone for six weeks, you know? <laughs> yeah. So just you want that time back, like you want yeah. some time back for yourself, like lo- yeah. a lot more leisure in your life. Um, you mentioned being single and then taking on clients in the evening time to fill that time. Is yeah. there anything to be more meaningful that you could do in the evening time, whether it is any type of socializing or in, in the future post COVID? Yeah. Like, yeah. Um, you know, I mean like joining a group or a baseball team or something like that, or, you know, bonfires. Yeah, for sure. Like, you know, like I got invited to a bonfire this week and I said, no, uh, you know, I mean, saying yes to that, you know, <laughs> <laughs> right. Oh, so saying no, you should start saying yes to the bonfires and no to the Mounties, not 
because the Mounties are taken yeah. care of in whatever. I could way. send them along to someone else, like I, like you said. I mean, and you don't have to be an ex Mountie to work with Mounties, right? Like lots of psychologists do good work too, right? Sure. I was just tell myself that we get there faster because I was one, right? But right. So just the last, is there any possible thing that would make your life better by saying no more to clients right now? And just Mm. no more to work in general at the moment. Well, to be honest, it's actually also saying yes, which I am slowly getting better. Yes, in that I hire people to advertise for my book and do my marketing and like I have just hired somebody and she's fantastic. And as soon as she's available, I'm going to double her hours, <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. Right. So yes to other parts of your work life that not, yeah. are not just yeah. clients. I mean, you've got, yeah. you're coming with a book, you've oh, got a, you've yeah. got, yeah. you've got a, you're Actually, on a mission. Yes. And you know what, there's another real good benefit to saying no, is that I really want to develop a course for other psychologists. There's so many mm-hmm. things I want to do with my book that I haven't done yet. Yeah. And, and you want to, and you want to make more time for that. So there's obviously yeah. the personal life and the professional life that would be benefited by yeah. having that space. Um, yeah. So is there anything, any <laughs> little tiny inch of a thing that you're going to, that you want to do that you're not like to, to move in that direction? Um, whether it's having an internal number of what a full caseload is going to be and really sticking with that. What, mm. what is one thing that you actually think you can do a bit better right now? Well, I am working at it, but it fluctuates at my success, which is, yes, exactly what you just did, having my number and sticking to it. You know, I worked in this office where there was 21 psychologists, and it seemed like one of the questions we always asked each other was, how many clients are you seeing today? I don't play that game anymore. That's, That's a, a really, game. like, That's a dumb game. game to play. That's a dumb game. It's, it's, like, it's like, who's more popular, who's more important, or whatever. I don't know what the game is exactly, but... I don't talk about that kind of stuff with anybody anymore because I don't consider it a prize to be busy anymore. I consider that a, a deficit to be over busy. Yeah. And this is a really interesting thing that we've do. And I've had episodes where uh, one of our episodes is called Adrian is busy because it was this yeah, response, that. this reflexive, yeah. right. This reflexive response mm-hmm. to say that he's busy I know. Um, as a validating statement that yeah. we all do. And I try, yeah. it's a weird thing. It's like, good, I'm busy. So busy yeah, means no. I matter, I'm valuable, mm-hmm. et cetera. And for you no. right now, it's going to be, you have a hard limit of clients and yeah. it's just when, when it's, when you're at the limit, it's just, it's, it's no, it's knowing yeah. that there's other people that can do the job. Yeah. You're not the best, you're not the great, you know, Kelly's amazing, but there's other yeah. great people <laughs> that do the job. And there's yeah. so many more things that you want to do with your time. Yeah to yeah. bring value. Um, and part of that is, uh, is getting men to out there. Yeah, you're right. I think it used to be considered a badge of honor to say you're busy. It's not anymore in my mind, right? It's a mm. sign of uh, bad self-care <laughs> in my mind now, it's a, right? It's, <laughs> it's all a balance. And, uh, but either way, thank you so much for sharing everything you've shared. Oh, um, thanks for having me now. It was, it was, it was truly appreciative to have you here. I hope the message gets out there. And I hope that in some small way, your change talk can inspire other people who are also having a difficult time saying no right now to work um, or to particular kinds of work. Um, mm-hmm. I might have to take your advice. Um, <laughs> I literally do. So if you do, you. I will. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we can keep each other accountable. It's true. Okay, thank you. Um, 
don't forget to follow us on social media to keep updated on all our content. We are at Change Talk Podcast on Instagram and Facebook and at Change Talk Pod on Twitter. Editing for this podcast is done by the lovely Atara Shields Tile. Music and theme song by Hope and Social in their album Yorkshire Electric EP with the song People Change.